0: Father, thank you. Uh, You are so good and so kind to us. Thank you for the way you show us that uh, through uh, your people so many uh, millennia ago. Uh, I'm just encouraged um, as I read the book of Judges, not because of the way the people behaved, but because of the way you treated them and how you stepped into them time and time again. Uh, We love you. Thank you for your mercy and grace in our lives. And I pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth. Your word is truth. We love you and pray for the spirit's teaching tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Oh, yeah. So first slide. Uh, I never meant... To become an addict. Now, this is not me, in case you're thinking, whoa. (laughs) I never meant to become an addict. Uh, I never meant to cheat on my spouse. I never meant to become an embezzler. here's one. I never meant to become lukewarm in my spiritual life, but I got bored. It became too hard to seek change. It took too long. Nothing ever seemed to change. And frankly, it no longer seemed worth the effort. Um, I have a privilege of talking with a great number of people. And each one of these is a true statement. Each one. Nobody ever meant to get to that end. But it always began with one decision to compromise. Why not? What will it hurt? I can always turn around. These are the end points. No one ever meant to go there, but that's where they went. And it just started with one little decision. What can this one decision God's expectation as we've been going on since September from Genesis and Exodus he gave them his expectation I've got a land set aside for you I want you to go possess what I've promised to you so he took them from Egypt and we kind of equated that to redemption and this sort of this bigger story By grace, through faith, under blood. He took them through Leviticus. Remember, Leviticus doesn't really advance the story, but Leviticus fleshes some things out. Numbers, the story keeps moving. He takes them in the wilderness to test them. Will you follow yourself or will you follow my word? That's what he's got them out there in the wilderness to find out. Which way are you going to go? You're going to trust yourself, you're going to trust me. You're going to listen to yourself, you're going to listen to my word. What are you going to do? What did they do? They listened to themselves, and so he told them, Burger King, man, as long as that still works, I'm using it. <laughs> Have it your way. That's Burger King, right? Have it your way. Some of you went, what? What, Burger King? Have it your way. And so they, want, they were afraid that they were going to die in the wilderness, and so he said, you got it. First generation dies in the wilderness, Deuteronomy, he, Moses' final uh, uh, sermons to the people, and he reminds the second generation now of the covenant that God made with the first generation. And he says, it's on you. What are you going to do? And they said, we're going in. And they did go in. And so under Joshua, they possessed the promised land. They began to possess it uh, as God had told them and said he would be with them, and he would do it through Joshua. And so Joshua is kind of the break with sin, self-will, and self-effort that we were talking about by way of big applications. By the time we hit the book of Judges, we are to the third generation. First generation dies in the wilderness. Second generation goes in and begins to possess the promised land. The third generation comes along, and so the book of Judges begins to deal with the third generation and following. So you think, wow, we're six or seven books in, and we're only on the third generation of Israelites. <laughs> yes, the book of Judges is going to cover quite a few years, though. And so you're going to see multiple generations come and go uh, in the book of Judges. But here's sort of the big idea, or the, the bumper sticker on Judges. It's the downward spiral. The downward spiral. And here's the big idea of the book of Judges. It's a slippery slope from living with the Canaanites to living like the Canaanites. They never meant to get there. But because of their divided hearts, they began seeking compromises, and they wound up in a place they never intended to be, and that's living like the Canaanites, rather than moving them out of the land or wiping them out, as God told them. It's a slippery slope from living with the Canaanites to living like the Canaanites, Um, I wrote this, "For, for God's people, what used to be unthinkable and unacceptable, living with and among the Canaanites, has now become tolerated and is the new normal for Israel. The new normal is going to be living like the Canaanites. They never meant to get here, but they did. The basics of the book... We don't know exactly who wrote it, perhaps Samuel. Samuel's going to be coming up as we hit the books of Samuel, and so maybe Samuel is the one who wrote it. Likely the book was written between about 1040 and 1020, Uh, particularly um, if Samuel is its author, that would make a lot of sense. Where was it written? We don't know. Why it was written is to demonstrate divine judgment on Israel's apostasy and to demonstrate the need for a centralized hereditary monarchy in Israel. By the time you hit chapter 8, if you got to do your reading, they want to make somebody king. Who is that? Gideon. That didn't work out so well for Gideon. But they already are starting to look around for a king. And so the book of Judges is that place, Samuel's going to finish that off, where we've got to transition from a monarchy of God being their king to a human king. So the book of Judges is going to begin telling us what God thinks of how they're living and also begin pointing out to them... Um, you know they're going, to be, they're going to be looking for a king. And, and God has some thoughts on that, which he'll get to in, in 1 Samuel. One of the things you've got to get under your belt is what is a judge? Well, sometimes, I had a professor say one time, he said, uh, sometimes you can't say what a thing is, but you can say what a thing isn't. <laughs> Here's what a judge isn't. They are not officially elected, appointed, Or anointed. They didn't inherit their office as did Aaron or the Levites. They're not national leaders but tribal leaders, and they're not chosen based on their spiritual maturity. (laughs) You could highlight that one. (laughs) They are not chosen because they are necessarily spiritually mature men. Now, the woman who shows up in here, Deborah, I would put her in a different category. But these fellas are not chosen based on their spiritual maturity. What they are, so what a judge is, they are raised up sovereignly and spontaneously by God. They're primarily military leaders. They may also have a little bit of a civil function but they are known as a deliverer, a deliverer. God raises them up to deliver his people from someone or some group who's oppressing them. Why do they need that? (laughs) Because of their covenant unfaithfulness to God. Where do the judges serve? Hopefully, you can see that in your handout a little bit better than this. This is, uh, Larry had to shrink this a little bit to get it on there. But what I want you to see is so here's the north. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's the north. We've got judges up here. Remember, there were tribes, two and a half tribes over here. Guess what? There's judges over here. Down south, guess what? Judges down here and over on this side, here's where the Philistines still live, but over here, and even in the central parts, there are judges. There are judges all over the nation, but they don't rule nationally. They only rule for a time over a tribe or over a a region. Uh, You've got your Bible open to Judges. Flip back one page. I want you to start, or we're going to start looking at uh, Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. This is the final chapter in the book of Joshua. Then Joshua summoned all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, including their elders, leaders, judges, and officers. So they came and presented themselves to God. And he basically walks through a history then of God leading them to where they are. He comes to verse 14. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. The people replied, we would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. Joshua might be a little skeptical. Verse 19, then Joshua warned the people, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy and jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he will turn against you and destroy you, even though he has been so good to you. But the people answered Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. You are a witness to your own decision, Joshua said. You have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, they replied. We are witnesses to what we have said. All right, then, Joshua said. Is this crazy? Destroy the idols among you. <laughs> what, what? The what? <laughs> Destroy the idols among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God. We will obey him alone. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day at Shechem, committing them to follow the decrees and regulations of the Lord. Verse 31, the people of Israel served the Lord throughout the entire lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him those who had personally experienced all that the Lord had done for Israel. Judges, chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites. So now we have a little bit in, in the book of Judges, we have a little bit of a rewind and summary. The Lord answered, Judah, for I have given them victory over the land. And so they pull their forces together and they go and fight. Verse 19, the Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. But they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. Verse 21, the tribe of Benjamin, however, failed to drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. Verse 22, the descendants of Joseph attacked the town of Bethel, and the Lord was with them. 27, the tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people living in Beit Shon, Tanakh, Dor, Iblim, Megiddo, and all their surrounding settlements because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. The tribe of Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. So the Canaanites continued to live there among them. The tribe of Zebulun failed to drive out the residents of Kitron and Nahalal so the Canaanites continued to live among them. The tribe of Asher fails to drive out, etc., etc., etc. 33 Likewise the tribe of Naphtali failed to drive out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as for the tribe of Dan verse 34 the Amorites forced them back into the hill country and would not let them come down into the plains. Judah starts off great. Things keep moving south from there. Chapter 2, a messenger comes and says, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors, and I said I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you are not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you are to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. Chapter 2, verse 10, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. And if you go all the way then down to chapter 2, verse 18, you get the explanation of the cycle of the Judges. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so the Lord would then, he would begin oppressing them again. And what would they do? Cry out. And then the Lord would send someone again and rescue them, deliver them. And then what would happen? Just this big cycle. So we begin with some good resolutions at Shechem in Joshua chapter 24. They said, we will serve the Lord alone. They started well in the first chapter of the book of Judges. But there was an incomplete conquest. I don't know. Maybe it just became too hard. Maybe it took too long. Maybe it was no longer worth the effort, thought the people. A new generation grows up who doesn't know or acknowledge the Lord and has never really heard nor seen of the things he's done. And for the rest of chapter 2, it's the story of they're going to find themselves in greater and deeper trouble as time goes on. So there's an incomplete conquest. The fact that they decided to live with the Canaanites and settle in with them, that became a bad thing for them. Some people would say that there are 12 judges, others would say there are seven The map shows uh, where the seven, and Laurie's got them numbered. If you think there were seven cycles of Judges, and a lot of people do, um, then that's where they uh, did their work. There are certainly others listed. The total is 12. Uh, Their listings in the book of Judges are way more incomplete than the full cycles that are listed for the seven. So if you want to say seven, you're right. If you want to say 12, you're right. How's that for compromise? That's good. So there were 12 or seven judges ministering over these many, many years in Israel. Here's what happened start with the black side. First, the Israelites do evil in the Lord's sight, so there's sin. Then the Lord hands them over and they suffer oppression. Uh, Look at this. Eight years, the next one, 18 years, the next one, 20 years, seven, 18, 40. Can you imagine this? Eight years. I mean, as a for example. 20 years. Some of you are hardly... 40 years old, that'd be half your life. Half your life you've been living under some kind of oppression. This is a long time. They finally cry out. Israel cries out to the Lord. Why? Because they've had enough. (laughs) What does the Lord do? He responds by raising up a judge, a deliverer, to free the people. And so under deliverance, there's the names of those seven judges. What happens? Judge dies. People sin. <laughs> the Lord sends oppression. And so the way this is drawn is great because it's it's a spiral. <laughs> it's going in. This is not getting better, this is getting worse. And each each time the Israelites in terms of just their lifestyle. Up here, uh, when we start with Othniel, up here, we're living with the Canaanites. By the time we hit Samson, we're living like the Canaanites. So you got to see this is a 3D. This is a spiral going down the whole time Israel is going down, down, down. Why did this happen? Because they were compromising with the Canaanites. Look at some of these. Uh, Let's see, chapter 3. Othniel. Othniel does a great thing. He's the son of Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he became Israel's judge. He goes to war. They enjoyed peace for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. And so we, we learn a little bit about Eglon, and the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer, a deliverer, to save them. His name was Ehud. He was a left-handed man. Oh, this is so important for the story. He's a left-handed man, and what does he do? He makes a, a sword thing, and where does he put it? as a left-handed person would, on his right thigh. Well, if you're living in a, a right-handed culture, what, what are you going to be careful to pat down if you go visit a king? Okay? I'm going to pat down this side. I'm not thinking anybody's got anything over here because you're right-handed. ho. Oh. <laughs> so Ehud makes this thing. All right, are you ready for this? This is the part in Bible class they never taught you. Some of you who've been been through this before, you're still going, I can't believe this is in the Bible. What? Here it is. Ehud makes this uh, thing, and and he brings the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home, but then he gets partway, and he turns back to Eglon. He says, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants Be quiet, and they sent them all out of the room. The room is the bathroom on the top of the building. The cool room. Now, why business got transacted in the bathroom, I do not know. But this is the situation. Okay, so he sends everybody out of the bathroom, and it may have been a little bit larger bathroom, but it was the bathroom. Ehud walked over to Eglon, (laughs) right, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. You know where he's sitting. You can't make this stuff up. I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat. No, 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 please. Sit, stay seated. As he gets up from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulls out the dagger, plunges it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. It's like of the Hut, you know, he just is... The da- uh, dagger goes in so deep. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger. Way to go, Ehud. And the king's bowels emptied. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. How do you think he got out? He just locked himself in the bathroom. Well, there's only one way out. <laughs> so he goes down the latrine. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors of the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, so they waited. <laughs> Phew! <laughs> I mean your bowels are empty. It, it is not gonna be a pretty sight. So they go inside and they they find him dead, and then they go out to catch Ehud, but he's already rounded up his people and they just they wipe him out. It's great. Way to go, Ehud. Willing to do whatever. It's crazy. Have You ever heard this before? No, you haven't. Well, here it is. You'll never come back. And then here comes Shamgar. Now, Shamgar, is he in the seven? Mm, but he's at least in the 12 because he's He's noted. Uh, After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hatzor. Uh, The commander of his army was Sisera, blah, blah, blah. Deborah, who's a prophetess judging Israel at that time, she would sit under the palm of Deborah and she would judge. One day she sends for Barak, son of Abinoam, and she says, you need to come here and you need to go rescue Israel. And he says, well, I'm not doing it unless you go. And she says, well, okay, but then a woman is going to get credit for this. And he says, cool. So off they go. And then, uh, right, they, Sisera is escaping, and he goes into a tent. Uh, and then Jael uh, takes a tent peg says, Puts a blanket over him. <laughs> <laughs> Nails his head to the, to the ground. Ah. And then she sings a song about how God delivered Israel. And so, man, crazy times in, in Israel. Here comes 40 years of peace. End of chapter 5. Chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian and all these people would come and take all their stuff. They cried out to the Lord because of Midian. The Lord sent a prophet. And says, I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But you have not listened to me. Is that pretty clear, Israel? (laughs) This is what God says. Then the angel of the Lord comes and he talks to Gideon. And then, poof, the angel of the Lord goes away, and Gideon decides he'd better do something, and so he does. He asks for a sign. Chapter 7, they go defeat the Midianites. God gives them a great victory. Chapter 8, they continue to to chase Midianite kings around. Uh, He chases them, and he finally catches all four of them, and he kills them. Chapter 8, verse 22, Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler! You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. Who's asking? The Israelites. This is the beginning. They're starting to think nationally rather than tribally. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. However, I do have one request. That each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies gladly, and he collects 43 pounds of gold, not including the, the royal ornaments and pendants, the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains around the necks of the camels. Gideon decides, I know what to do with all this gold. I'll make a sacred ephod, which is what the priest wore. <laughs> but soon... <laughs> this turned out well. <laughs> soon, all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. Not only that, Gideon goes off and finds quite a few wives, etc., has quite a few children. Uh, as soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making baal Berith their god. They forgot the Lord their God who had just rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. We're not even through with all the judges yet. We're in chapter 8 and you're going, this thing is, it's starting to swirl the toilet. Kind of looking back on these first eight chapters, compromising with the Canaanites brought nothing good to God's people. Brought nothing good. They were no longer useful for his purposes, no longer fruitful in his service, and he no longer blessed them as he had intended to bless them. They thought compromise, okay. They never intended to go and get where they went, but they started with one little decision to begin compromising with the Canaanites, and they slid down the slippery slope, and it did nothing good for them. They held room open in the promised land for both God and idols. So, God gave them the desire of their hearts, the relationship and walk they wanted. Not the one He wanted for them, but what they wanted. Living with the Canaanites led to compromising and living like the Canaanites. How about Israel? Her love for the Lord grew increasingly cold. Her loyalty to Him was partial and complacent at best. The peace and deliverance God brought them through the judges brought relief, but not Israel's wholehearted repentance. And as the years passed, they began to look more and more like the Canaanites rather than more and more like their God. This is what Israel experienced, the third generation and on, as God took them into the Promised Land. But then remember, He said, Chapter 3 of Judges, first two verses. These are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. He's not just interested in saints, he's interested in soldiers. Soldiers who can fight. So he left these enemies in the land so that his people would have real enemies to fight and begin to become more experienced as soldiers. But instead, they began to look more like their enemies than like their God. It's a slippery slope from living with the Canaanites to living like the Canaanites. The divided heart of compromise, it may not surprise you, affects us as well as it affected Israel. If I asked you, how about you? If you looked back a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, is there something that you would have said then that is completely unthinkable and unacceptable but now it's the new normal in your life? Sorry, am I meddling now? That's what compromise does, and it does it to me, and it does it to you, just like it did to them. The downward path of compromise, just like Joshua 24, begins with good intentions not to. Joshua 24, we will only serve the Lord and him alone. No idols. We won't do it. In fact, the ones we have, we're going to throw them away, Joshua. Good idea. God gives them victory. But not everybody's driven out. And so what happens? Well, we can't drive these people out we can't drive these people out. And guess what? They worship and serve other gods. And guess what? Those other gods start to come in. And by the time we're with Gideon, they're saying, we are just going to become Baal worshipers. I mean, that should startle every one of us. The downward path of compromise begins with good intentions not to, but neglecting the word of God creeps in. Was there something that God had not told them? No. Did they know what God's word said? Yes. Yes, they did. They just began neglecting it. Begins with good intentions not to. Then we start to tolerate the enemy in our land. Remember, we're kind of back to the promised land picture. We start to tolerate the enemy in our land. We no longer seek to expel or kill him. Some of the ones we used before from that wonderfully horrible book, Respectable Sins. Just think about those as your Canaanites. One we talked about quite a bit. I mean, we talked about anger. We've talked about some other things. We no longer seek to expel or kill anger. We just decide to move in next door to it and be okay with it. We live side by side with this enemy and we eventually surrender to him. Or perhaps, like some of the Canaanites, its desire to remain in us is greater than our desire and or faith to be rid of it. Some of these rascals, right, says, uh, hmm, chapter 1, verse 27, the tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people living in Beit Shan, et cetera, et cetera, and all their surrounding settlements because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. The Canaanites did not want to leave. (laughs) Guess what? The Canaanites don't want to leave. Have you experienced this? So we begin to tolerate the enemy in our land, and then we settle for what we have rather than for what we've been given. We've been talking all along about what we've been given, it's amazing stuff. I do it too. We begin to settle for what we have rather than for what we've been given. Maybe it just seems too hard. Maybe it just seems like it's taking too long. Maybe it just seems like it's no longer worth the effort. But I'll guarantee you this, it's a slow leak rather than a blowout. that very first slide I showed you, no one intended to get to that place they got to. Not even with that last one on the, sort of the lukewarm Christian life. Nobody meant to go there. Nobody meant to be there. It's just a slow leak that'll take you from wherever you are to this place down here. So I asked myself, why do we compromise? So I began with the result, with the end, just from these verses. Verses. There's an incomplete conquest. That's the result. They knew God's expectation regarding the promised land because they knew God's word. But it was an incomplete conquest. That was the result. So, what's the means? An incomplete obedience. They fail to trust God's promises and walk in the power of his presence. Why do I have an incomplete obedience? So, if I have an incomplete conquest, I have an incomplete obedience. Why do I have an incomplete obedience? Because I have a divided heart. They gave both God and idols a place in his land and in their hearts, and so do we. Some truth for divided hearts. There can only be one God and leader of my heart in the promised land of man's soul. There can only be one. All other gods, in quotes, or idols, are hypocrites. Idols cannot be redeemed, reformed, changed, or controlled Instead, they must be exposed for what they are false and no true source of hope or life and be expelled by the Holy Spirit of God. I want you to linger for just a second on bullet number three. And no one raised their hand. You need to ask yourself tonight, if you believe this. Do you really believe that it cannot be, whatever the thing is, cannot be redeemed, reformed, changed, or controlled? As long as you continue to believe that you can redeem it, you can make this all better, you can somehow reform it and change it, or you can control it, that Canaanite just dug a deeper trench into your land and he just became harder to root out. Tim Keller, I gave you a break from Respectable Sins. This is another equally great God, a great book. It's called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. Uh, worth a read. <laughs> Put on your seatbelt, though. He boils down, he says that he thinks there's four. He thinks there's a lot more, but these are four big ones. Four big counterfeit gods or idols that are deeply rooted inside of each one of us. The truth is, he's right. Listen listen to some of these things. Let's talk about love. Mm-hmm. Romantic love is an, I'm reading a summary, okay? I didn't write this, so if you get mad, get mad at him, not at me. (laughs) Romantic love is an object of enormous power for the human heart and imagination, and it can dominate our lives. And he goes on and he talks about love. He says, the person who can't have it, meaning a, um, a loving relationship, the person who can't have it will avoid people who would be wonderful partners. The person who must have it will choose unfit partners. If you're too afraid of love or too enamored by it, it assumes godlike power distorting your perceptions and your life. Many people have not found a romantic partner and they need to hear the Lord say, I am the true bridegroom. There is only one set of arms that will give you all your heart's desire and await you at the end of time if only you turn to me and know that I love you now. However, it's not just those without spouses who need to see that God is our ultimate spouse, but those with spouses as well. They need this in order to save their marriage from the crushing weight of their divine expectations. If you marry someone and expect that person to be like a god, it is inevitable that you will be disappointed. It's not that you should try to love your spouse less, but rather that you should know and love God more. Money. (laughs) His title on this is, Money Changes Everything. Uh, Let's see. Hmm. Let me read this part. Um, He's talking about another pastor at his church. Another pastor at my church once counseled a married couple who had severe conflicts over how they handled money. The wife considered the husband a miser. One day, the pastor was speaking one-on-one to the husband who was complaining bitterly about what a spendthrift his spouse was. She is so selfish spending so much on clothes and appearance. He saw clearly how her need to look attractive to others influenced her use of money. This is like all counseling right here. It's always that person's fault. The pastor (laughs) holds up a mirror. (laughs) The pastor then introduced him to the concept of surface and deep idols. Okay. Do you see that by not spending or giving away anything, by socking away every penny, you are being just as selfish? You are spending, spending in quotes, absolutely everything on your need to feel secure, protected, and in control. The solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the gospel, how he poured out his wealth for you. Now you don't have to worry about money. The cross proves God's care for you and gives you security. You don't have to envy anyone else's money. Jesus' love and salvation confer on you a remarkable status, one that money cannot give you. Money cannot save you from tragedy, or give you control in a chaotic world. Only God can do that. What breaks the power of money over us is not just a redoubled effort to follow the example of Christ. Rather, it is a deepening our understanding of the salvation of Christ, what we have in him, and then living out the changes that understanding brings to our heart, the seed of our mind, will, and emotions. Hopefully that sounds like his way of saying Romans 5. That's why we belabored Romans 5 so much. We've got to stand in Romans 5 because that's our identity. That's who we are and where we live. He probably said it better, but I would say Romans 5. Success. 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 One sign that you have made success an idol is the false sense of security it brings. The poor and the marginalized expect suffering; they know that life on this earth is nasty, brutish, and short. Successful people are much more shocked and overwhelmed by troubles. Uh, Aside, some of you think, "Well, I'm—I'm not sure I'm that successful." Um, how many of you have traveled overseas? Do you know what the annual living salaries of people overseas are? Yeah, not much. <laughs> Some might say $200 a year. I'll spot you. I'll give you $1,000 a year. Can you imagine living on one Thousand dollars a year. I can't even imagine that. You say, well, Bill, that's not here. That's over there. And so you're not as bad off. Have you been there? I talk to people and they go, I'm just not successful here. Because, you know, look. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't care how much money you're making here. <laughs> if you're making $12,000 a year, you're like 12 times more wealthy than the average person in this world we in these states, we are unbelievably successful and blessed. So this applies to all of us wherever wherever we are. Uh, But, okay, is this true? Successful people are much more shocked and overwhelmed by troubles. Yes, (laughs) right? It's true for me. The idol of success cannot simply be expelled It must be replaced. The human heart's desire for a particular valuable object may be conquered, but its need to have some such object is unconquerable. All during Jesus' ministry, his disciples asked him, When are you going to take power? When are you going to stop fraternizing with the simple people? When are you going to start networking and raising money? When will you run for office? When's the first primary? When's our first TV special? Instead, Jesus served humbly before being tortured and killed. When Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared first to women who, in those days, had no status. Jesus' salvation is received not through strength but through the admission of weakness and need. And Jesus' salvation was achieved not through strength, but through surrender, service, sacrifice, and death. This is one of the great messages of the Bible. God chooses the weak of the world to shame the strong, the foolish and despised to shame the wise, the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That's how God does it. Number four, power. One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We do not say, what a shame, how difficult, but rather, this is the end, there's no hope. And you say, whew, glad I'm not like that. Wait a minute. This may be why so many people now respond to US political trends in such extreme ways. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once were reserved for God and the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, everything will fall apart. They refuse to admit how much agreement they actually have with the other party and instead focus on points of disagreement. The points of contention overshadow everything, and a poisonous environment is created. Wow. In political idolatry, we make a God out of having power. To save us, Jesus lost all power and served. He died, but that led to redemption and resurrection. So, if like Jesus you fall into great weakness, say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and there will be growth, a change, and a resurrection. Only by admitting our need, our sin, need, and powerlessness, and by casting ourselves on his mercy, will we finally become secure in his love and therefore empowered in a way that does not lead us to oppress others. The insecurity is gone. The lust for power is cut at the root. As a preacher once said, the way up is to go down. The way down is to go up. All through that, you heard security and maybe even comfort. Uh, Those are just for free. Counterfeit gods... We all struggle with these, maybe one more than another, but we all struggle with all of these. These are some of the Canaanites that we're living next to and that we've decided we should live next to them rather than fight, try to expel them from the land, or have them killed. I'll just share with you, these are two of mine Mine are not like those, although I, I sure have those other four, for sure. Here's one for me. A desiring acceptance before men. And by that, I don't just mean men, I mean mankind. I want you to like me and seek me out. I fear rejection and loneliness. And so one of the compromises I'll make is get very passive or get very diplomatic. You even heard me do that a little earlier today, didn't you? Some people think there's 12 judges. Some people think there's seven. If you think there's seven, you're right. If you think there's 12, you're right. I don't happen to think that's such a big one, okay, but (laughs) points out the fact I desire acceptance. I also desire being significant. Now this one, is, this one is mankind, but it's particularly for men. I mean, in front of other men. Ladies, it might be other ladies for you, but for me, it's other men. So desiring significance before men. And I mean that in a gender way. I want the other men to respect me and seek me out. I fear not measuring up or making a difference. And so one compromise that I'll make, how do I do this? I keep trying to slow down and ask the Spirit of God to kill this. But you'll hear me every once in a while, hey, do you need a cup of coffee? You with me? You tracking with me? Some of that is for clarity. Some of it is sinful. Because if I get no feedback, I get no significance. Got it? Just two of mine. Just two. (laughs) There could be pages. What do I need to do? What do we need to do? No compromise. No compromise. What do I need to do? Do you need to come up to me and say, oh, Bill, it's not that bad. No, you know what you need to do to me? You come and you say, Bill, you need to repent. Why are you tolerating that idol? Why are you tolerating that Canaanite in your land? Why do you kowtow to its, shakes its spear at you or whatever it does? Why do you kowtow to that? Bill, you're looking for hope and life from the wrong source. You're already accepted in the beloved, Romans chapter 5. Just be prepared and faithful and leave the results to God. Larry can tell you. One of the first questions I ask every Sunday night when we leave here is how many came? Who cares? I do. (laughs) Why? Because of the acceptance and significance. If we had 200 people in here instead of just 100, I'd be like, yeah, baby, (laughs) I got it going on. And if there were 30 one night, I'd be going, I lost the mojo. It's horrible you might do this too, but I tell you, I do it, and so you tell me, Bill, you need to repent. You need to be prepared and faithful and leave the results to God, and you need to become increasingly content with God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for your life. Not your will for your life, Bill. God's will for your life. And I need to replace my idols with jesus what has happened is that canaanite who's a big scary giant has stood in front of me and he's blocked out my view i've let him block out my view of jesus and i need to seek more jesus his relationship and his presence and expect more from him not that he hasn't given me enough but do you know what we are particularly in fort worth you know what the little slogan is on the police cars Where the West begins. We're all a bunch of self reliant cowboys. And that's how we are with God. I don't expect more from God because I don't really need more from God. I'm fine with what I have, not with what He's promised. I need to expect more from God, more of what He's already told me I can have, not beyond that. Please understand what I'm saying. But am I having what he promised me already that I can have? No, because I'm too happy with what I've already got. And what I've already got, I'm pretty good. It's not going to cost me a lot to stay at this place. But I need to seek more of Jesus and expect more from him because I've been looking to this idol, this Canaanite, to meet some need in me instead of Jesus to meet that need. How about you? What Canaanites are you living next door to in your man's soul? Please feel free to get the book, Respectable Sins and read that or Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, another horribly wonderful book. He, they will enlighten you. (laughs) Have you been tempted just to settle down beside them and let them be? What will you do tomorrow about any division that's in your heart, holding room there for both God and idols? How do you need to repent and replace for next week, finish the book of Judges. It's not a happy read, but you need to read it, and we'll talk about it next week. Finish the book of Judges. Uh, allow me to pray for us, please. We'll be done for tonight. Oh, Father, it's so hard uh, for me to stand up here and talk about these things. Um, knowing that I struggle just like everyone else. Uh, thank you for your your uh, what you've said about yourself, that you're compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And if in the book of Judges, when your people were turning from you and putting you behind their back, and then in the midst of their desperation, they cried out to you and you had pity on them and you rescued them, you helped them. If you'll do that for them, you did that for them, how much more will you do that for us? In whom lives the Holy Spirit of God? I just confess again, I, I think so little of you so many times. I don't mean to. I just have to confess, I think so much more of myself. Would you please continue to work in our hearts, uh, make us the people that you created and redeemed us to become in Christ through the work of your Holy Spirit and through the work of your word, and I pray that he will not only be our teacher and our deliverer, but he will be our transformer even this coming week. We love you, we thank you for all you're doing in us and through us, and we thank you in Jesus' name.